Almighty God, thank you for these scholars who have come to learn more about you and the world that you operate in. Help us as we come together to study Islam and understand our relationship with the people of Islam. Help us where the conversation is deep and challenging and the reading is even deeper and more challenging to find wisdom and discernment so that we can use what seems to have been given by you to help us grow for your name's sake. Lord, for all the prayer concerns that have been unnamed at this table, I join with them in, pre, in, in pleading for your grace and mercy to be profoundly experienced wherever needed most. But I do join in prayer for Greg, for, uh, for uh, Penny's brother, for all of those who, who have particularly uh, threatening and frightening problems. We pray for those who are suffering in a variety of ways that don't get spoken of but are just as disturbing and troubling as, as some that we've heard of. So we just give it all to you, Lord. We ask that you make us stronger and better, that you give us the eternal mindset that assures us that in the end it all works out well and that we are temporary in this earth and its various sufferings. We pray together in the name of our precious Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. Anybody need the, we're using uh, episode four again, lesson four, thought I was doing my podcast for a minute there. Uh, so if you have it from last week, you're all set. And basically we were talking, and I, and I know exactly what happened, I happened. We, we, got, we got started on the first couple of questions and then uh, we got Dan. You know, and so let's see if we can get through the rest of this worksheet. We talked a little bit about the traditionalist theories. Uh, that is traditional in the sense that, that what the, the uh, Muslims will tell you is the story of the Quran and, and the movement of the Arab peoples. And we kind of came to the conclusion, if you remember this and agree with it, or if you don't say so, but we, but we kind of decided that this was probably as much of a racial thing as it was a religious thing. Right. And that basically part of the conquest story of Islam could be framed into the fact that the withdrawal of Rome and the infighting in Rome, the civil wars, you know, they had a four-way civil war in Rome at the time, and so the last main powerhouse of what used to be Rome was based in Constantinople, what was called the Byzantine Empire. And when the Byzantines pulled out of the Middle East, the Arab people had some clever leaders who saw an opportunity to create their own identity and establish themselves as a people. But the other thing we realized from our learning, and of course one of the things we realized was Pastor Dan doesn't know any more about Islam than what's in this book either. Okay, so I'm studying this book with you. And I'm learning with you. I know things I was taught in seminary when, when I did comparative religions and all that jazz. But if you think a seminary course that tends to spend maybe a week and a half and a hundred pages of reading on Islam gives you a lot to go on. Well, I'm telling you, this book may seem hard to you, but I picked it because I wanted to have a better understanding than I had. So that's why I picked it. Um, that being said, we, we kind of draw off of this book as our main source of information, knowing that one book is never an adequate source of information about anything, because no matter how skillful or uh, presumably uh, unbiased the author is, the authors always bring a bias. You can't not write, you cannot write a book about anything or even write a paper about anything without bringing your own bias in some to some extent. So I chose this book because I decided that if it's going to have a bias, let it be a bias toward helping Christians understand Islam for the sake of their relationship with Islamic neighbors and co-workers. So I chose that because I thought it was an acceptable bias for us. If that makes any sense. So that being said, we kind of concluded that that one of the weaknesses in the story of the Arab conquests is that from the Muslim point of view, it is 
kind of this glorious victory that affirms Allah's belief in Muhammad as his perfect prophet. And, you know, so they've got this whole sort of drama that's pretty mythological, it seems, based on historical record. And one of the issues that you have to take into account when you're examining the story of Islam and the Quran is that it's relatively recent history. The history that we get from the Old Testament of our Bible predates recorded history. You know, and, and so that's, what, that's what they mean when they say prehistoric. It just means that before there was a recorded, documented history, people were still doing things, and if they had a history at all, it was an oral history. And Judaism, or the people of Yahweh, had a story that was being told orally even before recorded history. And the first five books of our Bible were, in Christian tradition, believed to have been written or at least supervised the writing by Moses. So Moses gives us the first five books because one of the things Moses does is establishes Israel in a as a place in history, as establishes Israel in history. And just recently, there's been some uh, archaeological evidence that Moses did exist. And some people would say, well, well you know, how, how can you know for sure he existed if Pharaoh struck his name? For, well, that's in the movies, for one thing, okay? <laughs> and and what's interesting is, is that they have found evidence from that era in Egyptian ruins of places where Moses' name was struck off of something. So some of the evidence for the existence of Moses is the lack of evidence for the existence of Moses because it's clear that this whole succession of known entities described in the Bible as and, and, and in Egyptian history and then all of a sudden you come to this blank spot where somebody's name's been chiseled off. So there's certain interesting things about that that seem to affirm the Bible story. So um, I even heard something recently, well not so recently, but a couple of years ago I heard this and I've heard a verification from a different source lately that you can take all of the uh, characters in the stars in the uh, Zodiac? The Zodiac, thank you. They have biblical counterparts. Every one of them has a biblical counterpart. Even Virgo, the virgin. You know? So that's a whole other story for another occasion. But some of the people who have found, you know, discovered this this potential reality have argued then that if that existed in the stars, then in a way God had written their history in the stars and the people had interpreted that story as they could carried on their traditional their oral tradition by referring to the constellations in the sky to explain the story of the people. Now obviously Moses didn't know about the virgin, but yet the story is being played out in the stars. I'm just saying it's a very interesting concept. It's, it's very fascinating. I am such a firm believer in the, um, like the truth of the Bible as a literal truth, you know, like, like that when it says one day Jesus is coming again and all these other things will precede his coming. And I believe all that. That doesn't mean that I'm a fool and I'm taking it all literally verbatim, word for word. It just means that the truth is there. And so I think one day when the Lord reveals himself again, we're going to, in time, begin to understand there are more things that are in the Bible that are literally true than we could have ever wrapped our minds around. And that God was expressing God's self everywhere. I really believe it. And I think as long as I live as a Christian, it seems like more and more I can see God in things that I couldn't see him in before when I was young and ignorant as a Christian. You know, So I'll just challenge you as a Christian to keep your eyes wide open and see how many ways you can see God. And the reason I bring that up is just because as we go on further with this Islam, there's, there's one aspect of Judeo-Christian spirituality and belief that you don't see in most of the other major religions of the world and that is that God is not passive 
God is involved in the lives of the people personally. That God personally involves God's self in the lives of the people and in their politics and in their comings and their goings, you know, and, and, uh, and that personal involvement is the one critical difference that you can't completely compare with other religions. In fact, the, the Islam in the Quran, according to this book, says that it's, you know, God isn't directly involved, that they're there to, you know, execute God's will and then hope that it pleases God. You know, and then go on the promises of, of Islam that pleasing God will get you certain rewards. You know, but it's subjective. So just keep that in mind as you go further. Um, let's see, we asked about what the strongest arguments for the traditional Muslim view are. Um, basically that there's no denying that Arab people spread all over the region during this period. And some of the arguments for the revisionist version are basically that there's no evidence for conquest, but there's plenty of evidence for migration and integration. You know, that, that they moved into certain areas. Um, they had the might, you know, they had the military might to, to uh, kind of threaten the people into submission, but they didn't necessarily conquer and you know, kill in the name of Allah. There don't seem to be too many battles associated with this period called the seventh century. So, and then finally we get down to D and here's where we pick up from last week. So, do you remember reading about intermediate monotheism? I got one yes. Does anybody... Uh, First of all, here's something I like to do that I would encourage you to do because any class I lead, my podcast, I encourage people to do their critical thinking. So here's a critical thinking ex exercise for everybody who doesn't have the book or didn't read about intermediate monotheism. Let's just examine the phrase and think about what it might mean. Monotheism. Theos means God. Mono means one, right? So we know monotheism means one God. Intermediate. I, I'm like, what? Um, you're either a monotheist, monotheist or not. Right. But I know that the people were polytheistic prior to Muhammad. Right. So they're coming into a monotheism. So this would probably be related to the process of developing this monotheistic view. Transition. The yeah. transition Isn't that cool how we just did a little word study and figured out so much? If there's one reason why highly paid lawyers and professors with books all over their offices and ivy growing up their uh, building <laughs> get paid to write big words it's because sometimes with a few big words you can say a whole chapter's worth of something <laughs> I appreciate you laughing at my joke because what I really wish is that there was a college professor in the room to hear the joke <laughs> because <laughs> sometimes when I would talk to some of my seminary professors who really taught well but didn't know anything about the real world I just kind of wanted to say, you know, I think you've let the ivy grow up your uh, building. <laughs> you know, because they get so rooted to the institution that they don't know anything about what goes on outside of it. Yes, sir? This monotheism, uh, that's the revisionist perspective, not the traditionalist perspective? That's a question. Um... The way I read this, yeah, I mean, it's okay. it's it's because basically he he's kind of got a pattern in these chapters where he starts with his objective, which you know what we're going to explain mm -hmm. in this chapter, and then he goes into what the traditional view, meaning what Muslims believe yeah. and are taught to believe, and then he goes to the revisionist or the the counterpoint of view. And then he starts breaking it down from the counterpoint of view. So most of the chapter is about what's wrong with 
the yeah. traditional view. Sometimes I get lost in words. Oh yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of big ones here. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it was my impression that the traditionalist view was that Islam always was. Yeah. And the revisionists think that it was developed and generated over time, as opposed right. to, and created, as opposed to just being eternal. That's that's the way I interpret it. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Is that kind of how you got it? You know, um, <laughs> I got a, uh, I got my first A on a theology paper, and if you knew my academic background, you'd realize what an amazing transformation God has ordered in my life because I, I was one of those who graduated from high school. Lottie, how come? <laughs> And then I finished with a master's degree, summa cum laude. I mean, during my adult years, I transitioned from I don't give a darn about school and barely got out to uh, like a 3.5 to 3.8 student. And it's because I was into what I was doing when I got there. And I didn't care about what I was doing in high school. And I remember my first A came on a Theology 101 paper in 97 or 98. And I read the book, and I was so appalled by all the big words and the crazy snooty language of the thing. My paper being a 101, meaning that they weren't expecting much from me. All I wrote in my paper over and over again was, I read this, he said this, I think this is what he means, and honest to goodness, teacher, it seems to me like these guys are just having an argument with each other and I'm having to read it because you assigned it to me. <laughs> but they weren't writing it for me, they were writing it to their colleagues who are just as big-headed as they are. <laughs> and that's kind of, I mean, I, I, you know, I made it more eloquent, but I said that like three times in a row on this paper. Every time I would comment on one of the things that I read in the book, I just say, and, and who uses words like that except for theologians who are talking to other theologians? And he gave me an A plus and said it was a very insightful and well-written paper. And I was like, I was basically telling you I thought it was a stupid book and I never understood it to begin with. So, so it just goes to show you that, that you know, if you ever pursue higher, higher education, keep in mind that the good professors value critical thinking more than they do, uh, you know, you acquiescing to their system of belief, you know, the good ones. So, my, so intermediate monotheism is basically based on the fact, think about the stuff we've studied up to this point. It's based on the idea that Islam sort of evolved from pagan religions and from Arabs who were Christians and Jews, but Arabs. And you know, to this day, there are still Arab people who are Christians and Jews. So even though they're descendants of Ishmael, say, so to speak, or, uh, you know, they're they are, by family tradition, Christians and Jews. Uh, believe it or not, Jericho is one of the largest populations of Arab Christians in the world. Bethlehem has a small population of Arab Christians. It's growing smaller all the time. But, so there are Arab Christians in the world. They were then too. And so as these critical leaders, like our friend uh, Abda al-Malik, he is trying to unite Arab peoples around race and the biggest stumbling block is, is that they're all coming from different religious backgrounds. Some of them are coming from pagan religions, some are coming from Christianity which they got taught you know under, under Christian influence and under Roman occupation. Uh, some of them are coming from Judaism which has become a hybrid again because of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They're going back into the synagogues like they did during the first destruction of the first temple. So all that means is, is that when the Jews are spread out and they don't have a central location for their religion, they're spreading their religion because they have to do the religion wherever they are. And you know, the Arab guy that they do business with in the village, he says, oh, you guys are going to prayer. Can I come with you? Well, you can, but you have to be a Jew, you know. Well, okay. What's it take to be a Jew? Because seems like it makes you, you know, more prosperous than me. Because Judaism, this is a whole other discussion, but that guy Rabbi Lappin that we talked about last fall, 
he became well known because he wrote a book that only an Orthodox Jewish rabbi would dare to write, which is why do Jewish people seem to generally do better with money than most other people? And he wrote the book. And the book basically says it's not what those stereotypes make it out to be. It's not what, you know, uh, certainly not what Hitler thought. It's, it's none of the cruel things that people say about Jews have anything to do with why they do so well with money. It's because they follow the Bible. They follow the Old Testament. And the Old Testament prescribes, first of all, even the New Testament tells us this, we're supposed to do business with our own kind and be especially good to each other. That doesn't mean we don't include outsiders and don't welcome outsiders. It just means that there's a higher expectation toward each other in the Christian community and the Jewish community that's written into the Bible. Jews are expected to be better to Jews than they are to other people by comparison. Christians are expected to be better to Christians than they are by comparison to others. And all that means is, is that, that it really disturbs God when you don't take care of your own family. Yes, sir? What you're saying, I heard what led to World War II because the Jewish people were, were thriving in, a, in Germany, which was under a, like a depression at the time, and they were jealous of the, Jew, of the Jewish people doing well in their country. Well, and I think Hitler needed a common enemy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty complicated. I think what you're saying is definitely part of it. <coughs> but um, he just had a real hatred for those people. And what's really interesting is that is I've only learned this recently because I read a lot about and watch documentaries and things, you know, about World War II because I was raised by that generation, you know. And so I want to understand the people who brought me up and told me some of the things I learned. You know, most of my teachers were veterans of World War II, Korea, even Vietnam, some of them. And, you know, the Vietnam guys were really cool because they had long hair and bell bottoms. And, you know, but, but the fact is, is, is that... I wanted to understand them, so I started reading backward and studying it, and, and uh, then I got to my grandparents and started studying World War One because both of my great my uh, grandfathers were in World War One. And what's really interesting is war is complicated, and generals and especially politicians like to uncomplicate it. And the simplest way to uncomplicate it is get shooting going. <laughs> you know. It get, it's complicated when all this negotiating is going on and all this, you know, it just, it's a whole lot easier when you just get them out on the battlefield and duke it out if you ask a politician or a general because they're sending other people to die, you know. So that's Dan's opinion, but, but World War II, the, 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 uh, a lot of people don't remember that the, the, uh, the Nazis were responsible for the deaths of about 11 million Russians. They tried to exterminate gypsies. So not only did they try to destroy the Jews, which is the best known, but they really were planning to purify the German race, which meant that sooner or later they were going to purge some of their own because they weren't Aryan. And mentally disabled, yeah, mentally ill, your what, kids would have... Yeah, my kids would never survive that. And one of the things that... that uh, history is starting to speak more plainly about is that in a way the Nazi party was more Himmler and Goering and those guys and they found the perfect stooge in Adolf Hitler. That yeah. He was the missing piece and when they found him they made him who he was because he was this eloquent speaker and he was very persuasive and, and he knew how to point the finger at certain people and, and you know because they are also systematic. I, my kids wouldn't have survived the Nazis and I wouldn't have survived the Nazis. And the simple reason is, is because I think too much and I'm willing to talk to people about what I think. So they'd have gotten rid of me early on too because they don't want anybody to resist. So you get rid of resistors. You burn books because ignorant people will do whatever you tell them to. They'll believe whatever you tell them to believe. Thinking people, you've got to get rid of them because they'll tell the people what they don't know. Did you know that during World War II, each company of men, the scout, was generally always an Indian? Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was the Indians could communicate with each other in their native tongue, so to speak, and the Germans couldn't decipher that at all. Yep. Well, and then code talkers. Yeah, yes. the code talkers were more in 
the Pacifics, but still, yeah. They were unable to figure out these Indian languages, Native American languages. So, so I know I you know went out a little bit on that, but but I guess what I want to say is, is that when you start getting to, I want to show you this. I kind of looked this up, and so went on the four religions. Mm -hmm. But then the major three are those three. Yep. What's the fourth? You know. What are the four monotheistic religions? And it says there are three. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to the question is there are three major monotheistic. <laughs> and according to this, is, this is like somebody just handed me a, a magic eight ball. <laughs> magic eight ball. What are the four major monotheistic religions? The three major monotheistic faiths are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think any of the others are. That of the major religions, you know, and, and believe me, uh, but, but yeah, I, um, so I told you we were going to finish four tonight, we're going to okay. come hell or high water, <laughs> and the high water's already here, yes, so. <laughs> so, so basically what's happened is, is that they're trying to pull the Arab people together, these good leaders, and I don't care what history says about them, you know, evil leaders who gather people together around a certain cause and accomplish whatever they set out to accomplish. They gotta be good leaders. You know, at the end of the day, you can use your leadership skills for good or evil. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've witnessed it in the church. <laughs> and and you know, so so this Abdu Al Malik, he's he's a good leader apparently. He's getting the organizing the Arab people and he's using the the idea of Muhammad and one God as a rally cry and that gives him a leg up in virtually all of the religions they bring to the Arab the Arab people bring to the what's going to be the Islamic people except for Judaism because as far as they're concerned Christians believe in three gods they believe in the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and you can tell them to you blue in the face that they're one God uh, you know, and three individual persons, but even a Christian finds that difficult to explain and understand. Mm -hmm. It's a matter we take in faith, but it's a mystery that makes God more godlike, and that's why we kind of approach it that way. And because we see all over Scripture, and even in the living of our lives as Christians, this sort of evidence that God can be any of those at, at, at any moment, you know, because sometimes we feel the movement of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we feel the presence of Jesus the Lord. Sometimes we feel the, the oppressing weight of God the Father's presence. In my Christian life, I've experienced all three of those at different times. So I have my faith evidence plus what Scripture tells me to inform me about that. But if you're looking at it from a purely practical standpoint as a non-believer, you kind of have to go, I don't get it. You people sound like you're talking in circles. So Abdul Malik, he Al Malik, he he just he capitalizes on that. He says there is one God, and Muhammad is his prophet, and he's got them. He's rallying them around this thing that sets them apart from all the variations that are coming in. And so then they work it backwards, and this is where this intermediate monotheism comes in. He tells the Christian Arabs, "No, it's all right." It's all right. The only part you didn't get right is that there's only one God. But Jesus was one of his great prophets. Because if you ask, especially a uh, Sunni Muslim to this day, they'll tell you, oh yeah, the Quran acknowledges Jesus as a, as a great prophet. You know, and, and John the Baptist even. So, so, so what he's done is really ingenious. Because he's given them a rally cry and giving them a unique identity as an Arab people that takes their tribalism and sort of gives them a unity. So that's kind of what this intermediate monotheism is. He's saying, uh, you're not all the way to, you know, like when I, when I was in high school, because they were always building a new building somewhere, the old high school became the intermediate high school, right? So when I was in intermediate high school, what was I? I was almost... I, I was almost a sixth grader and I was almost a high schooler, you know, I was in the middle somewhere. And that's kind of what I you know, take this to mean, that intermediate monotheism is taking people 
who need to revere the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus, and he's saying to them, that's all right, they're, they're great people. They, God used them. But God has a new prophet, and this prophet has solidified everything for us. And from here forward, this is the truth. It's brilliant. But so does that kind of give you an idea what this intermediate monotheism? It's just, it's just a college professor way of saying he gave them a way to tie it all together and rally them around one guy and one prophet. Is it, he and his contemporaries, because I'm sure he didn't do it all himself. Uh, what roles does this Abd al-Malik play in developing the rhythm? I think I just said that. Mm -hmm. Y'all feel like I did? Mm -hmm. Okay. Explain how you would use the verses in the Quran that deal with contradictory views such as no compulsion in religion compared with the call for world religious <laughs> denomination or domination. Be sure that you explain the concept of abrogation. Another big word. Anybody? I have a question. Ask away. Um, one of the reasons they felt so strongly about Islam and the Quran was the Quran was so perfectly written. Yet, we have this term here that says, I was wrong before, now it's right. On a piece of literature that's supposed to be perfect. And so, the hypocrisy and the inconsistencies. Yeah. Yeah. Just an observation. No, and, and, and you know what, I, I, I feel like I can tie that together for my own benefit, mm -hmm. maybe for yours, with the idea that the Bible also supersedes itself, but it does it in an entirely different way. And I'll explain that in a minute. So abrogation is a fancy word that means whatever I said about that earlier in the book, I've changed my mind later in the book, you should do what I said later in the book. Right. And it's in a, if you don't change your view, there will be consequences. Yeah. Apocalyptic. Yeah. So it contradicts itself because the Quran says that it's not a compulsory religion, but then later on it says, no, never mind, now it is compulsory, either convert or die. And they pretty much operate, at least the Shias operate that way to this day. Where I look at the Bible and how I think it differs is whenever God makes a covenant, like his covenant with Abraham, he'll supersede that covenant by giving a new covenant through Moses and the law. And then Jesus comes along and he gives a new covenant through, him, through his flesh and blood, something we celebrate every time we have communion. So what, what God says is, I made a contract with you through Abraham, and that covenant is still in... Uh, maybe the better way to put it is he, append, he appends the, the covenant, you know. The inconsistent. No, the, yeah. they, keep, they keep building on each other. So with Moses, he appends the covenant with Abraham, mm -hmm. not supersedes. That was a poor choice of words. And then with Jesus, he appends, well, then with David, because he has a covenant with David that appends the covenant with Moses. And then with Jesus, he has another covenant. And each one completes the previous one and takes it to the next step. It's a work in process. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think that's the strength of Scripture, again, is relational. It, it's relational, you know. Um, it's like a marriage where you renew your vows periodically. I know it makes you laugh, but I mean, seriously, just think about it. Let's say you're in a committed marriage. You've been together for, for 40, 50 years. There have been different times throughout the marriage when you've gone through a little bit of a crisis or you've had a little bit of lack of faith in each other over something and, and uh, you know, it may have been a financial problem or a difference of opinion about children, you know, maybe even the threat of unfaithfulness or something, but whatever happens, you choose to move forward and maintain the covenant. And so the bond gets stronger and the covenant grows and, and that's because it's a living relational covenant. That's what marriage is meant to be, and that's what, what our covenant with God is meant to be like. And that's why the Bible uses language about Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the bride, because there's a covenant with us. 
and and the covenant is a growing covenant so that's kind of the difference I think liberal Muslims may be swayed by a demonstration that the Quran seems to advocate for violence against non-Muslims um, let's see I want to yeah I, I put an excerpt from the book in here at H I'll come back to G in a minute now because I know some of you don't have the book I copied this paragraph on your worksheet it's in italics the most enduring part of the struggle was a significant <coughs> division between two groups who disagreed over whether the succession of Muhammad would be decided by community consensus or by family ties. The group called the Sunnis, followers of the tradition, gained the upper hand from the beginning, and the first three rightly guided caliphs, Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman, distinguished themselves in their leadership on the battlefields and in their devotion to Allah. After an opponent assassinated Uthman, the Prophet's son-in-law, Ali, was chosen to succeed him. This brought hope to Ali's followers called the Shia, followers of Ali. But not all Muslims were in favor of this decision. Muawiyah, a strong Sunni leader, criticized Ali for not avenging Uthman's murder and refused to recognize him as caliph. This disconnect or discontent led to a battle between the forces of Muawiyah and Ali at a place named Sifin in 657. I wanted you to read that because that's the first reference in the book to the Sunnis and the Shias. And if you watch the news to this day, if you listen to how our relationship with Arab peoples is evolving as a nation and as the Western world is trying to work out how to deal with the people of the East and in particular the people of, of Islam there is a very important distinction between Sunnis and Shias and what's really interesting is, is that both basically operate under the same Quran but one group interprets it more severely than the other and Sharia law you ever heard of that? Sometimes you hear about it in the news. I'm going to give you an example that will gross you out a little bit. But it's not uncommon in big cities like Chicago and New York, L.A., where large populations of Arabs are gathered for somebody's Arab wife to turn up dead, maybe even beheaded. And that's because under Sharia law, if the husband feels that she's done something that warrants it, he can kill her. And, of course, U.S. law has a different opinion of that, and so it makes the news. But this is a problem that's emerging all over the world where Arab peoples are beginning to immigrate and take over. They have a big problem in France, for example, especially around Paris, with Shias, and they're uh, operating under Sharia law. Sunnis generally are more common in America in the more spread out places. When I lived in Muncie, there was a Muslim community there, and there was a Muslim like gathering place they, they didn't call it a mosque but it was a Muslim community center or something like that I can remember I can picture it in my mind but I can't remember exactly what it said on the wall but these people were Sunnis and they were pretty harmless in comparison to what you hear on the news about Shias <coughs> and Sharia law and so these were people that were our doctors and things you know that, that, that kind of thing and and a lot of them were professionals in the community and Ball State was there and we had you know Islamic people who were in the staff and the faculty at, at Ball State so all I'm saying is, is you're likely to run into Sunni Muslims even around here you, you could conceivably run into somebody that would call themselves a Muslim and if you probe you'd find out they're Sunnis there are quite a few doctors mm -hmm. there are Islamic so from here forward, pay attention to the distinction between Sunnis and Shias because it's going to make a big difference 
but that takes us back to G. So how would you use the information that you've gained to transition into talking about the free gift of salvation and the hope we have in Jesus Christ? So your SUNY doctor or your SUNY professional that you work with somewhere in one of our international corporations around here opens the door for you. How do you gently step in? Time for me to stop talking for a while and for you all to do some more. <laughs> you can talk about your experiences, right? I mean, what, how, my, my, my experiences are different than their experiences. Okay, so, so thought exercise. What would they do that you would consider an opening? What would they say or do that you consider an opening to a conversation like that? Ash Wednesday's coming up. Maybe you come back to work with that with the ashes on your forehead. You know, when I was six years of Muncie, we never did Ash Wednesday because that church didn't want anything to do with it. And I could have gone either way because I'm a former Catholic and I'm a little bit obstinate about, you know, pagan idolatry and that. Thanks for not laughing. It means I got away with it. But <clears throat> here we do it, and I'm fine with that because I can find meaning in it. I can say to you, you know, it's not a bad idea to remember that we all end up dead in dust unless Christ comes before we die. So might as well reconcile with that because his resurrection is the thing that saves <clears throat> us from remaining for all eternity dead in dust. It, it depends on where that person is. Um, when I was working at the hospital, I was in the uh, geriatric behavior unit, and we had a psychiatrist who was Islamic. And I was working on my bachelor's degree through Liberty University online, and I mean, every paper we had to have spiritual formation. How does how would you apply Christianity, your faith, to this situation? And so I always had a Bible with me. And I hope that he watched my life as much as anything. But one day he said, he asked something, it was getting near Easter, and he asked something about how the Old Testament figures into Easter. And Oh, by the way, did anybody happen to have a Bible? Well, I was carrying a Bible for my schoolwork, and I grabbed one of the chaplains and said, please, please, please. And he gave me this whole list, a printed list of Scripture. And um, Dr. Amet spent several hours in a chair just reading my little Bible. and mm -hmm. But it wasn't something I didn't just go blasting in. And right. I think that's important, is to be respectful. And uh, now one thing the book says every time it gets to the end of a chapter and says, you know, if you want to approach your Islamic friend, they're probably not going to buy this. I mean, he says that, and then he yeah. says, however, <laughs> so obviously, you know, any more than you'd be shaken from your beliefs by a frontal assault, right? You know, that's just, that's just our nature, you know, and... but. I sometimes have wondered, I said, I was going to make you talk. I, sometimes I wonder, uh, not too often anymore, but every now and again I have these dark moments, like maybe in the middle of the night, you know, where I'll just think, you know, what if one crucial part of my whole belief system is unraveled somehow? You know, what if that happens? Cause, because I've gone through this sort of catharsis that I, I call it my software upgrade. I, you know, I'm on 57.8 right now. That's my upgrade. And um, I go through these spells and it's just because I'm rethinking certain things. And it's a matter of personal integrity but it's also a matter of integrity to you as your pastor. It's like, you know, uh, if I'm not living my own Christian journey, then I'm no good to you. You know, so that's like really important to me. So I've been thinking about things like, like you know, I just read a book recently about called Pagan Christianity with a question mark, and it very effectively demonstrates how most of our Christian traditions are based on pagan beliefs, and you know that that just 
the structure of our sanctuaries, the idea of the pastor being on one side of the bar, right? Because if you look at our sanctuary, a traditional sanctuary looks just like a courtroom, you know, and all of you are spectators and I'm standing on the other side of the bar presenting the case. You know, so, so I'm reading all this, and it, it isn't shattering my faith or anything, but it's making me think, how do I, with honesty and integrity, continue to practice some of these things? Well, the answer I came up with is, they may not have been derived from appropriate sources, but they have become part of this mission field called the church, because I don't know if anybody's told you this, there's a lot of people here who don't really believe everything that we say we believe. You know, there are a lot of people who go to church here who if push came to shove, they probably couldn't admit that they are a Christian other than in belief. I, please don't take it personally when I say that. Every church has people in it who have intellectual assent. That means they agree intellectually that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that his death somehow atones for sin. And they agree with all that on an intellectual basis, but they haven't felt that assurance in their heart. That's John Wesley's story. He was a very intelligent man, highly intellectual, very well trained, an Anglican priest. And yet when push came to shove in his critical moment where his life was on the line, he realized he didn't believe it in his heart. And he couldn't understand how a person was meant to believe it in their heart. How do you even get there? And then one day at Aldersgate Street, when he was listening to a certain Bible study from the Book of Romans, all of a sudden it came over him and he just felt strangely warmed, you know. And so somehow faith happened. You know, his, his whole being was infused with the presence of God so that he believed. I can tell you stories about... Not so much a once-in-a-lifetime transition, but in my life I've felt kind of when I'm doing these upgrades, right? Every time I finish one of my upgrades, I feel God's presence in a more profound way than it did before. And so it's like I'm warming from my toes all the way up to my head or from my head down to my toes. I don't know. But, but the point is, is that <coughs> this, this is where I think you go with people who aren't believers and you have them sitting in the pews with you. They have an intellectual assent, but they don't get assurance. You wouldn't believe how many times they go to bedsides, at hospitals, deathbeds. Yeah. I go to nursing homes and I visit with people who can see that their bodies are beginning to fail and the end is near, and they don't feel ready at all. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody's excited about the process of dying, but there are people that I have met many times in the church all their lives. And, and I can remember getting yelled at by them because I inadvertently folded the tablecloths instead of laid them on a table that was meant to be where we store all of the tablecloths because she donated those in 1949 and they've lasted this long because they never got folded. But when she was on her deathbed, she didn't have assurance. And it scared the daylights out of her. And through a process of discussion and prayer, she found assurance. So all I'm saying is, is that that's the part of you that will win people to Christ. Is your assurance, your belief that there's more to you and the things of your life than the substance of what is seen and known and tangible. That the day you were born again, you became eternal. And the day you die is simply part of the journey from being here on earth in this time and space and being in the presence of God for all eternity. But your eternity doesn't start after you die. It starts when you're born again. And living like that and approaching your troubles that way and living a witness that says, you know, yeah, it's scary thinking coronavirus could take over this whole country. You know, yeah, it's scary thinking that the North Koreans are going to nuke somebody one of these days. Yeah, it's scary that Iran's going to nuke somebody. You can say all of that, but then you can also say, and yet I have total confidence that live or die, God is with me and for me, and whatever suffering I see or experience in this lifetime is temporary. And that witness in itself can be a profound inspiration to people who don't believe. So don't limit your witness 
to people that you're sure don't believe the same thing you do because they have brown skin and they carry a Koran. Let your witness shine to everybody because for all you know, the person sitting next to you in the pew needs that way worse than your person who reads the Koran. Because if you stop and think about it, a really dedicated person of Islam, in a lot of ways, is closer to God by the commitment to their practices than a Christian who goes to church every Sunday but never lives any part of their life like God is important. I mean, think about it. At least the Muslim stops to pray five times a day. I was thinking about that. That's what struck me the most, I think, when we went over there was even in the airport, you would see them stop, put their little mat thing down, and they would pray. Mm -hmm. they, I mean, they're, and, they're and then the, the Orthodox Jews mm -hmm. did the same thing. They stopped wherever they were. We drove down the road, and this guy's sitting, his car's sitting on the side of the road, and his door's open, and he's got his little phylacteries tied to his head. That's a box that they put, leather box they put on their head and on their arm, and, and, and it has scripture in it. And it's, it's a weird tradition, but, it, but it's somebody saying, oh my gosh, it's time to pray. It doesn't matter if you're late for work, doctor's appointment, or whatever, you stop and pray. Now, honestly, those people may not believe in Jesus Christ. They may not be committed believers in the same sense that you would think all of us should be who call ourselves Christians and yet in a way they practice their faith with more earnestness than people who claim to be Christian and and, and I don't mean this the way it sounds but, but given how I believe and the way that I've dedicated my life to this belief not only but also in my professional choice and the way it's affected my family and I mean, given all of that sometimes I look at church people and I think you look at your watch as if I run over five minutes. You get angry because we ran out of chocolate-covered donuts. You don't like the hymns we're singing, or you can't stand the banging of that drum, or you, you're asked to give a little extra because it's Second Mile Sunday, and we're trying to keep the building from falling down in the future for the next generation because we believe there's going to be a next generation. So how about helping out with the capital campaign? And you say, you're always talking about money. Well, you know what? Jesus said where your heart and your money, your money is, that's where your heart is, you know? And so, so sometimes I think, gosh, I probably would have a better chance of witnessing Jesus Christ to a Muslim or an Orthodox Jew than to a Christian. Dan, I'd be willing to bet that there are as many of them that are going through the motions as there mm -hmm. are Christians. Two things there, and those that will stop and pray three and four times a day, they might do the exact same thing just because that's what their mother did and that's what their father did, and at 12.05 or whatever time it is, that's what they do. And Havoc. It's, it's habit. habit. It, it, it yeah. is. Why, you know, why are you praying? What are you praying for? What are you praying about? And I'll bet you that there will be a, a large number of them that couldn't answer that question. And then, of course, I'm going to challenge you because um, people that, that come here, those, that, those of us that really need it, and, and I've, I've challenged you on this before, I'd much rather have them, you know, in here doing that because something that gets said or something that get, gets read might get through where if they're at home watching their television, what gets through to them may not, you know, it, it might not be what's good for them. And there are a lot of um, nominal Muslims. And uh, I know that for a fact. I mean, when I was in Kazakhstan, there were two <coughs> traditional religions in Kazakhstan that were permitted by the Soviets when it was under Soviet rule. One was Islam and the other was Russian Orthodox Christianity. Both were completely lobotomized. You know, neither Islam nor Orthodox Russian Church were permitted to have any like open spirituality or anything that, that might have been a threat to the Soviet government. Your religion was the Soviet Union, basically. But they were allowed to exi exist because, as I think it was Lenin that said it, you know, or was it Marx? 
religion is the opiate of the people. That was Marx. That was Marx, yeah. So, you know, they understood that you got to give people that because there's a part of their lives that requires some sort of superstition to practice, right? But, George, you make an excellent point, and, and please know, because I know you know me, we're friends, you know that what I'm really trying to do is challenge our thought right now because, no, I, I'm very aware that people are, in every religion, nominal practitioners who just go through the motions out of a mm -hmm. sense of duty, out of sense of habit. Um, you know, we used to say this prayer at my table when I was a kid. Um, we always said this prayer that went like this. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty, through Christ our Lord. Amen. And it was the the youngest always got to take over at some point at our table. So when it finally got to me, my turn, here's what I said. I think I was 21 before I actually knew the words to that prayer. <laughs> because I could make it sound like I said it. And of course, I eventually got a younger sister, and she took over mumbling whatever it was. And she's a nun now. I should ask her if she knows the words to the prayer yet. But... <laughs> but but I'm just saying I, I get it I really do and when I challenge us it's it's very it's, it's not meant to be in any way condemning or condescending I just I just want us to think that if you're looking for a mission field it's right here and George is right if they're here they're available to the Lord and the Lord may be prompting you to be the witness and I'd rather have them here like I said I, I go through this you know, catharsis or whatever, I think, well, I don't even know that the religion we practice is all that legit when you get right down to it because the New Testament church, why, this is more like the New Testament church than anything we do down there or down there. And I could get all wrapped up in that in my thought, and that's just the devil, the devil messing with my head in the place where it's most vulnerable, that big soft spot right in the middle. Another question. Yes. Okay. Uh, in, in, I, I tried to figure this question out. Figure out where they're coming. Okay. Uh, and and your your faith is that core that is that is brought out to witness with with those around you, as opposed to you actively promoting it and marketing it, if you will. Yeah. yeah. I'm just just. I, I've been thinking about this for about ten minutes, sure. and, and trying to figure figure this one out. And I think you make an excellent point, and you know, and it's not something you actively do. Right. It's something that you are an example of mm -hmm. because of what that faith and those habits have built into you. People go to church every Sunday and then walk away from it, but a lot of people build that faith and that core and exude it. As an example, that being their witness. Yeah. And at some point, that person who walks away may decide they want what you have. Exactly. And then that's when you have the conversation. That when when they ask when they're, about, when they're prepared to be like you, if you will, as opposed to someone that is that is showing prayer all yeah. the time. If you will. Oh yeah, I, I you know, I, and and I yeah, I think it's an excellent point. I really do, and it really is the best thing we could end on tonight, which is the most important thing you can do, even right here in your own house and right here in Shiloh, is be a Christian. Yeah. With all your heart. And that's it. And when your spirit testifies to the presence of the Holy Spirit, it makes a difference. Absolutely. Um, I gotta get George to pray, but it seems like there was one other thing that escapes me mouth. So it must not have been that. That's an uphill battle, isn't it? <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth? Get George to pray. <laughs> As is. Well, thank you for a few extra minutes. Thank you for a great conversation. Next week we'll pick up with the next chapter, so you can read ahead if you want. Uh, I know it's a tough ride for some of you, and it's all right. I understand. Either way, I'm going to do my best to interpret it, and with your help, it'll make sense. So thank you for that. And uh, let's see. I
can't think of anything coming up right away. We've got a pretty long span here where our classes are uninter uninterrupted, but we will be gone for uh, spring break, which is third week in March. Ash Wednesday, yeah, that, that's coming up in a couple of weeks, so there you go. Keep that in mind, wherever you see that in the bulletin, <laughs> we won't have class. So, you ready, George? I am. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that we can live in your light and walk in your truth. May the things that you have revealed and thoughts that we have shared dwell in our hearts and stir us to action. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you very much. God bless you, everybody.